0: Well, the big question that I'm asking myself these days is um, how can we make a human artificial intelligence? Something that is not machines and stuff like that, but something that we can all live in as humans with a human feel to it. Um, and I don't want to think small. People talk about robots and stuff. I want this to be global. So think of Skynet but how would you make Skynet be something that's really about the human fabric? And in thinking about this, I think the first thing you have to ask is what's the magic of the current AI? Where, where is it wrong and where is it right? And and the good magic is that it has something called the credit assignment function. And what that lets you do is take really stupid little neurons, little linear functions typically, and and figure out in a big network, which ones are doing the work and encourage them more. So so it's a way of of taking a random bunch of things that are all hooked together in a network and making them smart by giving them feedback about what works and what doesn't work. Sounds pretty simple, but it's got some complicated math around it. Um, and that's really the magic that makes it work. Now, the bad part of that is, is that Because those little neurons are really stupid, they're little linear functions, um, the things that they learn don't generalize very well. If it sees something that it hasn't seen before, it's likely to make just a horrible mistake. Um, If the world changes a little bit, if you give it something different, it's likely to make a really horrible mistake. And it has absolutely no sense of context. In some ways, it's as far from Wiener's original sort of notion of uh, cybernetics, as you can get, because it's not contextualized, it's this little uh, idiot savant. But imagine that you took away those limitations of the current AI. Instead of using little dumb neurons, you use things that embedded some knowledge, like maybe instead of linear things, you use things that were functions in physics, and now you tried to fit physics data. Or maybe you put in a lot of stuff about. Uh, humans, and how humans interact with each other, and the statistics of that, and the characteristics of that. It turns out that when you do that, and you add this credit assignment function, so you take your set of, of things you know about, say, humans, and a bunch of data, and you reinforce the functions, you get things that work really well. So for instance, in physics, you can take a couple of noisy data points and get something that's a beautiful description of a phenomenon because you're putting in knowledge about how physics works. Um, That's in huge contrast to normal sort of AI, which takes millions of training examples and is very sensitive to noise and things. Or the things that we've done with humans where you can put in things about how people come together, how fads happen and suddenly you find you can detect fads, you can predict trends in ways that are really spectacular. And some of my students have gone off and started a company called Endor, you should look it up, uh, it does amazing things based on that sort of key idea. So we have this idea of the credit assignment, the reinforcing things that work as being the core of AI, and if you make those little things that get reinforced, those neurons smarter, the AI gets smarter. What would happen if the neurons were people? And people have, of course, lots of capabilities. They know lots of things about the world. They can perceive things in a human way. What would happen if you had a network of people, and you could reinforce the ones that were helping, and maybe discourage the ones that weren't? Well, that begins to sound like a society, or a company, or something. We all live in a human social network. And um, in fact, what we do is we're reinforced for things that seem to help and help everybody, and discouraged from things that are not appreciated. So culture is actually something that comes from a sort of human AI. It's this function of of reinforcing the good and penalizing the bad, but applied to humans and human problems, and from that we get culture. And the question then is: is once you realize that you can take this general framework of AI and create a human AI, what's the right way to do that? Is this a safe idea? Is this like completely crazy? And so, what we've done with my students. Uh, particularly Peter Kraft and Josh Tenenbaum, another faculty member, is look at how people make decisions on huge databases of financial decisions and and also other sorts of decisions. And what we find is, is that there's actually a very interesting way that humans make decisions that reflect this credit assignment problem that makes the community smarter. And the part that's really the most interesting is is that it addresses a classic problem in evolution. Where does culture come from? How can we select for culture in evolution when it's the individuals that reproduce? What you need is you need something that selects for the best cultures, the best groups, but also selects for the best individuals, because they're, of course, the things that transmit the genes. When you put it that way, and then you go through the mathematical literature, you discover that there's one way to do this. And that way is something you probably haven't heard of. It's called Thompson sampling. But it's a way of combining evidence, of exploring and exploiting at the same time that has a unique property, that it can be good for the individual. In fact, it's the best strategy for the individual And it's the best strategy for the group. So if you select on the basis of the group, in other words, a group gets wiped out or reinforced, um, you're also selecting for the individual. Or if you select for the individual, if the individual does what's good for them, it's automatically the best thing for the group. That's an amazing alignment of interests and utilities. And as I said, it addresses this huge problem in evolution, which is where does culture fit in? So the key to this way of reinforcing good things is something we call social sampling. And it's just very simply looking around you at what other people do, finding the things that are popular, and then copying them if they seem like a good idea to you. It sounds very simple, but if you actually look at what people do, and you look at mathematically how good it is, what they're doing with the social part, with this finding what's popular, is they're trying to find the best ideas out there. So idea propagation has this popularity function driving it, but then individual adoption has to do with, well, how would this work for me? A reflective attitude. But when you put the two of them together, you get decision making which is better than anything else you can do. It's actually a Bayesian optimal portfolio method. And that's pretty amazing because now we have something that is a little recipe, a mathematical recipe, for doing with humans what all these AI techniques are doing with little computer dumb neurons. We have a way of people putting people together to make better and better and better decisions given more and more experience. Now, what happens in the real world? Why don't we do this all the time? Well, people are actually pretty good at it, but there are ways that this can run amok. One of the ways is things like advertising or fake news. There's many ways where you can get people to think that the popularity is something that it's actually not. And that screws the whole thing up. And what that comments is is that the way you can make groups of people smarter and smarter, the way you can make human AI will work only if you can get feedback into them that's truthful feedback. It has to be grounded on did it work or not. And of course that's the key to the AI mechanisms too. What they do is they look, did they recognize the image right? If so, plus one. If not, minus one. We need to have have that sort of truthful feedback to make this human mechanism work well. And we need to have good ways of knowing about what other people are doing so that we can assess the popularity and the likelihood of this being a good choice in the correct way. What we're doing now is trying to build this credit assignment function, this feedback function for people so that we can make a human artificial intelligence, a smart organization, a smart culture. And what we've done in many ways is to be able to duplicate some of the early insights that resulted in, for instance, the census that every country has, Trying to find some basic facts that everybody can agree on and understand in order for the transmission of knowledge the transmission of culture to happen in a way that's truthful and we've done this in lots of ways in little companies we've done it with little badges that pay attention to who's connected to who and and how good the result was on a you know weekly basis did they sell more did they invent more, things like that. And, and when you can get that feedback quantitatively, which is difficult because most things aren't measured quantitatively, but when you can get that, we found that we've been able to improve the productivity and the innovation rate within organizations by typically 5 and 10%, which may not sound great, but is actually huge. And what we're doing now is we're trying to do the same thing, but at scale and I refer to this as sort of an operating system for humanity, and I know that's been used a lot. But what this is, is is like the internet, but with the ability to perceive what's really going on. In the same sort of way that we trust the census to do a, a pretty good job at, at telling us about population and GDP and people moving around, can we add more types of data to things. And the the approach we're using is something that's called open algorithms, uh, supported, interestingly, by the European Union as a way to deal with privacy, security, and competitiveness at the same time. China has just approached us about using this as a way of dealing with some of their internal conflicts. Countries in Latin America and countries in Africa are also beginning to experiment with this. It's a way of taking data from many sources, from companies, from government, and subjecting it to the scrutiny of all the stakeholders, the people who care, to make sure that the provenance of the data, the questions asked of the data, are understandable and fair, and then publishing this openly just as the census is published. And what we've done is we've done a series of experiments for these operating system for humanities um, under the label data for development. But we've done it in places like London, where we were able to detect communities under stress with high accuracy. In Italy, where we were able to deal with privacy concerns and yet, at the same time, have sharing of medical data, particularly among young families to have better health Uh, in Africa, to map poverty and look at places where ethnic violence were going to happen, Um, and to be able to do things like uh, better predict uh, the the propagation of infectious disease. So what we're seeing is, is that this sort of big picture of how can we make humanity more intelligent, a human AI, may be coming together. And it's built on several threads. One is data that we can all trust, data that has been vetted by a broad community, data where the algorithms are known and monitored, much like the census data that we all automatically rely on as being at least approximately correct. And then the other is a fair assessment of What are people doing and what are people not doing? That part doesn't exist yet. That's the part of this credit assignment problem. That's the part where fake news and uh, propaganda and advertising all get in the way. But we have now the science that argues how you're supposed to actually go about building something that doesn't have these echo chamber problems, that doesn't have these fads and and uh, madnesses. And so we're beginning to experiment with that as a way of curing some of the ills that we see in society today. Open data from all sources. And this notion of having a fair representation of what are the things that people are actually choosing and how is it working out for them in this sort of curated Mathematical framework that we know stamps out echoes and stamps out fake things. So there's a there's a bunch of relevant things. Is, is, is I, I grew up in a very blue collar way. I'm very unusual. People carried guns in my high school, right? We sold drugs. It was it was like places that almost none of the readers go. Um, But today, I'm a faculty member at MIT. And what I've discovered is is that traditional academia is too constraining. So in fact, I have a whole network of conspirators who are also faculty and entrepreneurs around the world who help me do things like experiment with how can we make society smarter? How can we make organizations smarter? So in the last decade, for instance, I've started more than a dozen companies. We have uh, academic units in six different places. Um, I have appointments in Beijing and Oxford and Istanbul uh, as a way of recruiting many different perspectives and many different talents to bear on this problem of creating a human AI. Uh, And uh, so when I say we, it's this sort of network of people scattered all around the world that are collaborating to be able to um, create a world that's based on truth and which can make good decisions. And for instance, the reason I'm here in New York today is for this UN Foundation-sponsored effort, which is called the Global Partnership for Sustainable Development Data, which is a group of countries and organizations, hundreds actually, that are committed to this goal of producing honest data that can be used for good decision-making. And that's a pretty amazing thing. Oh, it's completely transformative. No, no, I, I, because, I get it. Because you imagine like a, holding a government, uh, a transparency in government? I mean, you know, having like, you know, how are your people doing? How is poverty changing? How is, you know, forced migration? I mean, imagine that that was something that was truthfully available everywhere in the world. It would be completely transformative of government. So, the things that we're facing, um, you know, everyone talks about global warming, sure. Uh, we also have incredible polarization and segregation by income almost everywhere in the world, and that threatens to tear governments and civil society apart. We have increasing population, which is in part the root of all those things. Um, and increasingly, as we were talking about earlier, Um, The new media that we have, the internet, the downfall of traditional media, is causing people to lose their bearings. They don't know what to believe. Uh, It makes it easy for people to be manipulated. And there is a real need to put a grounding under uh, all of our cultures of things that we all agree on and to be able to know which things are working and which things aren't. One of the the dangers that challenges is that, of course, that's not in the interest of many uh, of the political parties or economic parties, but it's also something where we've left ourselves terribly vulnerable. We've now converted to a digital society, but the cybersecurity stuff we have is a joke. Um, Similarly, I think that, uh, one way or another, we've lost touch with the notion of justice. Um, I think justice used to be very informal, mostly. And we've made it very formal, but at the same time, put it out of the reach of most people. Uh, And so our legal systems are failing us in a way uh, that they didn't before, precisely because they're now more formal, more digital less uh, embedded in society and informal. So talking about justice uh, is very different around the world. People have very different values. I mean, one of, the, one of the core differentiators is do you remember when the bad guys came with guns and killed everybody? If you do, your attitude about justice is different than the average edge reader. <laughs> okay. Um, Were you born into the upper classes? Or were you somebody who uh, uh, saw the the sewers from the inside? Uh, A common test I make for people uh, uh, that I run into is, do you know anybody who owns a pickup truck? Well, it's the number one selling vehicle in America. And if you don't know people like that, that tells you that you are out of touch with more than 50% of America. (laughs) We're I mean, completely out of touch. Segregation is what we're talking about here. An income segregation, a, a conceptual segregation. And they think of justice and access and fairness as being very different than the typical, say, Manhattanite. Take a typical city and you look at patterns of mobility, like where people go, and we do stuff like this. What you find is you find the people that are in the top quintile which are not the Larry Pages. We're talking about working stiffs, but they're white-collar working stiffs, right? Mm-hmm. And the bottom quintile, which are the people that are sometimes on unemployment and sometimes on welfare, and, and they're having a hard time getting by, they never see each other. They don't go to the same places. They don't talk about the same things. They see the world very differently. I and mean, it's just its amazing. They all live in the same city, nominally. but But it's... It's as if it were two completely worlds, right? And I think that really bothers me. The the reason I'm not so worried about the the super rich, right, is that the evidence is. I mean, this happened in 1892, right? It happened in 1890 when people invented, you know, steam and railways and electricity, and and these new industries created incredible fortunes, which were all gone within. Two to three generations, um, and today's ultra wealthy, um, you know, at this point, fifty percent of them have promised to give away more than fifty percent of their wealth, creating uh, a, a plurality of different sort of voices in the foundation space. So I mean, so Gates is probably you know the the most familiar example where he sort of decided, well, the government won't do it. I'll do it, right? You know, you want mosquito nets? We'll do it. You want, you know, uh, antivirals? I'll do it. I think uh, what we're getting is we're getting different stakeholders, which are going to be these uh, foundations, which are dedicated to public good. Almost all of them, I think all of them. Um, But they have different versions of public good. And diversity is good. You know, a lot of the things that are wonderful about the world today are come from things like the Ford Foundation or the Sloan Foundation. Things that they bet on that nobody else would bet on and happen to pan out. The same thing happened when we had railways. You know, people made incredible fortunes, a lot of people went bust. We, the average people, got railways out of it. Pretty good. Same thing with electric power. Same thing with many of these things is, is that there's a process that's a churning process that throws somebody up and casts somebody down. Um, if we were like Europe, I would worry. Because in Europe, what you find is the same family has wealth for hundreds of years. So they're entrenched not just in terms of wealth, but in terms of the political system and other sorts of ways. But so far, the U.S. has avoided that. It just doesn't stick, right? Good, it shouldn't stick. You know, if you you win the lottery, you make your billion dollars, uh, and your grandkids have to work for a living, yeah, the lottery does that, right? People are scared about AI and things like that. And uh, perhaps they should be. But you need to realize that AI feeds on data. Without data, AI is nothing. So you don't actually have to watch the AI, you have to watch what it eats and what it does. So the, the framework that we've set up with the help of the EU and other people is one where you can have your algorithms, you can have your AI, but I get to see what went in and what went out. So I can ask, is this a discriminatory decision? Is this the sort of thing that we want as humans, or is this something that's a little weird? And and the key there is that uh, uh, the the analogy is is that um, regulators, bureaucracies, parts of the government are very much like AIs. So they take in these rules that we call law, and they sort of elaborate them and they do these mysterious things and make decisions that affect our lives the part that's really bad about that is is that we have very little oversight of these departments regulators and bureaucracies the only control we have is do we feel bad and we should elect somebody different let's make that control over bureaucracies a lot more fine grained let's be able to look at every single decision and analyze it statistically and have all the different stakeholders come together, not just the big guys, right? Rather like legislators were supposed to be at the beginning. Um, in that case, we can ask uh, fairly easily, is this a fair algorithm? Is this something that this AI doing things that we as humans believe is ethics? Uh, it's called human in the loop in various ways, but, but this open algorithms approach is um, to be able to take the AIs and you put them in a sandbox where you get to see what they eat and what they poop. And and if you will see those two things, you can know if they're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. And it turns out that's not too hard to do. It's not, It could be an infinitely complex AI. It doesn't really matter. You can see what it does and decide if you like it. The point is, is, is that if you control the data in the way that we're talking about, the way we're doing, not just talking about, we're actually setting it up on country scales, then I don't need to know what you think. I do need to know what you do. OK? So if I can know what the AI is doing, I can ask if I like it or I don't like it. The problem that we have in so many parts of government now, justice system, et cetera, is there's no reliable data about what they're doing and in what situation. How can you know whether the courts are fair or not if you don't know the inputs and the outputs? You have to know that. The same is true of any of the AI stuff. I remember being at Oxford discussing this, and and one person got up and talked about, oh, how all the horrible things AI could do in terms of the justice system. And the, the justice minister for Kenya got up and said, what you say is true, but have you seen the current system? Almost anything would be an improvement. We need to hold government all these systems to account in terms of what they put in and what they put out, and AI should be no different. And in that way, we've got them where they live, which is they eat data, and without data, they can't do anything.